Bow your heads with me a moment. Let's reflect on the God who is with us, whom we have been worshipping in song, talking to in prayer, and who comes here looking, watching out for us. Lord Jesus, please in your mercy walk amongst us and given whatever may be going on in our hearts and our lives right now, we pray that you would break through and grasp our attention. Give us the sure sense of your presence right here with us. Not just generally overlooking all of us, but coming to be with each one of us. Take my lips, Lord Jesus, and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, we are working with the title, The Prodigal God, which seems a very unlikely title because most of us assume that the word prodigal means wayward. And that's how we use it. So when the prodigal comes home, it's a wayward son or daughter. And I know that Pastor Jamie, was, as he was preaching last week, was offering hope that wherever you've got the prodigal son or daughter or husband or wife or relative out there, that God is out there looking. We are working also with a title that's on a book written by Tim Keller. This book is available in the bookstore. I would encourage you to go and get it. It's not a massive tome at all. But it takes this one story, a very famous story, which I'm sure most of you are very well acquainted with, of the prodigal son. But the word prodigal actually, literally, does not mean wayward. We do not have a wayward God to call him a prodigal God. The word prodigal literally means recklessly extravagant. Recklessly extravagant. So that when we have somebody who is really, really skilled at something, we say they are prodigious. Same root word. When we say they're prodigious, we're saying they're absolutely spectacular at it. When you speak about a, pro- a child prodigy, what are you describing? A child who is brilliant bet- beyond his or her years. It's the same root word. A child prodigy. So when we're speaking about a prodigal God... We're not speaking about a God who's wayward. We are speaking about a God who is recklessly extravagant. So when the younger son comes, as the story unfolds, and it is Jesus telling a story to illustrate a point, 
when the younger son comes and speaks to the father and says, I don't want to, in literally is saying to him, I don't want to wait until you die to get my inheritance. I want it now. There are two sons in the family, and it's the younger one who's asking for it. So what the father does in a prodigious way, in an extravagantly reckless way, divides up his estate, and the younger son, who's asking for his, receives one-third of all that this very wealthy landowner had at his disposal, and gave one-third to the youngest son. The other two-thirds, the double portion, to the older son. The younger son quickly, whatever he had to do, sell the land, take what was his, and with that wealth, head off, as the story tells, to a far country where in a reckless way, in a recklessly extravagant way, He spends the whole blooming thing. And he does it in wicked, reckless living. So that in no time flat, it would appear, certainly as the story unfolds, he's broke. He spent it all. No one will give him anything. And so he ends up feeding pigs for a very, very meager livelihood just to exist. Well, it wouldn't be lost on you that when a Jewish lad is feeding pigs, he's at the bottom of the barrel. Jews don't eat pork. If they're strict to their their rules and regulations, they don't have bacon for breakfast, ham in their beans. Here is this Jewish lad feeding pigs and actually feeding himself on what the pigs were eating. When he comes to his senses, he comes back to the father. And the father is out looking for him, presumably on some high tower, because he sees him afar off in the distance. Good news is that while he had given the wealth to the son who'd gone off and spent it recklessly, the father had not given up on the son and was out there looking for him day after day, watching for him to come back home. And that's the encouragement to us as well, just in passing. And I know that Pastor Jamie, if you were here last week, spoke to that. But the father, again, is prodigious in restoring the son. He gives him a robe to cover all the filth and grime, puts the ring of sonship, authority on his finger, shoes on his feet, and then calls on the staff to throw this huge party to kill the fatted calf and 
start the merriment because his son who was lost is back home again, safe and sound. And so the party is in process when the good boy, the older son, who is out some distant field at work, makes his way home after the workday and hears the merriment. The father who in his spectacular generosity, extravagantly reckless, it would seem, in the eyes of the good son, because the restored younger son who's already squandered a third of the estate is now back, part of the family, and there is this massive celebration going on. And Jesus is telling the story. And that's where we pick up the story this morning and deal this morning with now this good son who is very, very upset at what the father has done. Look at page 6 in your service sheet or at Luke chapter 15 verse 25 in your Bibles. And we'll follow along with this just to get the full flavor of this good son's response. Meanwhile, it says, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older son became angry and refused to go in. Now what you have to catch here, which everybody there would have understood, is that to have this huge party with presumably much of the village present to celebrate Anybody who was anybody would have been at the party to celebrate the return of this lost son at a party thrown by the father. The killing of the fatted calf symbolizes this is a massive celebration. And the son, the older son, refuses to go in. He is so angry at what the father has done, what he would consider reckless extravagance, he refuses to go in. And what would not have been lost on anybody hearing Jesus tell the story is this. That that son is absolutely disgracing his father. He's obviously giving a vote against the father's actions. And in no sense wants to participate in the celebration that the father has thrown for the, the boy back home. And consequently, he stands outside. Well, I don't suppose he was just standing around in the corner. like He was wandering around. He was walking up and down. He was not going to go in. And the father's aware of it. Somebody obviously came and said to the dad, your other son's outside and he's not coming in. He doesn't want to be a part of this. And what does the father do? 
again, in what in that culture would have been a recklessly extravagant action, he goes out, and the word here is he pleads with that other son to come on in. Well, that other son's words are dripping with vitriol. He was just absolutely beside himself. Verse 29, when he answered his father and said, look, it's like he was saying to him in his face, look you, like we might say when we are speaking to somebody roughly, rudely, arrogantly, talking down at them, hey you, that's how he's addressing this patriarchal leader of the family and of the community. Hey, you. Look. He's in his face. And he says, all these years I've been slaving for you. He's picking words, not just to make himself look good. He's very critical of the father and has regarded what he's been doing for the father as slavery. I've been slaving for you. Not just working for you. Not just as a hard worker. Not just as a faithful son doing what a faithful son might do. I've been slaving for you. Vitriolic language. And then he goes on in self-congratulatory language. Never disobeyed your orders. He doesn't even say your wishes or your desires. When he talks about orders, it's like he's been acting like a slave, given language like a slave, to go and obey like a slave. This is all a disgraceful kind of reaction because he is beside himself with anger at the extravagance of the dad, receiving back into the family this lost son. I never disobeyed your orders, and you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours, I've underlined this, he doesn't say when my wicked, reckless brother, what does he call him? This son of yours, degrading, like this, this messed up kid is your boy this son of yours, almost disowning him as his brother in his self-righteousness, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes. He comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. Now when this episode is described in Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God. He gets into a redefinition of sin and lostness. Because the truth of the matter is that the good boy is as lost as the reckless kid who went off and squandered everything. He's arrogant and self-righteous. He's angry at his dad There are a couple of things, if you put it all together under a couple of headings. The first is, 
that he's full of himself, he's boastful about himself. Self-righteous people, people who think they're doing the right thing all the time, can brag incessantly about how good they are and find ways to let people know. And what this lad is doing now, the older son, is telling his father how good he is. His virtue in being obedient, working hard. It's like a story Jesus told in another place where there, was, there were two men in, in the temple going up to worship. One of them was like this prodigal son, the wicked son. And he, all he could do was beat his chest and say, I'm not worthy. I'm a sinner. And the other chap who is full of self-righteousness comes into God's presence and starts telling God how good he is. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. He spoke about his tithing down to all the stuff that he did. Perfect picture of what's going on here in the story where the, the reckless loser comes home and God throws a party in his extravagant love and the apparent good boy shows his true colors. It's not about the father. It's about himself and his righteousness. His self-proclaimed goodness and obedience and hard work. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, he attacks the father and speaks in a way and uses language that presents himself as morally superior to the father. That his judgment is better than the father's. And that he's holding the father to account that somehow the father hasn't recognized in him all the good stuff he's done. You haven't even given me a goat to celebrate with. And he is going after the father who's already given to him two-thirds of the estate. It's really his estate now. You and I can fall into either category. I would guess here most of us see ourselves like the one we call the prodigal son. And we are glad that God is extravagantly generous to us and receives us back. That's me. We have a, an old prayer book in our usage back where I come from in England. And every Sunday, this is the prayer that all the self-righteous people in the pews, as well as the ones like I, myself, screwed up and wicked, would pray. Almighty and most merciful God, listen to these words. We have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. All the good people were saying that. When I first turned up in church, and I knew I was a, I was a reckless sinner, I was a mess. I, I wasn't raised to go to church. I wasn't a churchgoer. I didn't know really what was going on. But when I heard them saying these words, I thought, my goodness me. These describe me. Heard and strayed like a lost sheep. Followed too much the devices and desires of my own heart, our own hearts. 
we have offended against your holy laws. It just keeps on, this prayer keeps on. It's relentless. We have left undone the things we ought to have done and done the things we ought not to have done. And then it has this grand description, there is no health in us. Our prayer that we pray here is kind of lightweight in comparison to that. We kind of almost glide over it, all the stuff against God's law, so that we don't want to look too bad. It's almost like they've rewritten it so that we good church-going people don't look so bad. That's where the good boy, so-called, the older son, got it all wrong. In comparison to his brother, he may have looked pretty good. In comparison to the father, who he's denigrating, putting down, finger in his face, giving him, the father, the sense that he, the, the, the son, sees himself as morally superior disagreeing with the father's action, protesting, won't go into the party, and then takes him on with this vitriolic language. Do you know something? When any of us ever find ourselves criticizing God, do you ever say to yourself, if I were God, I would not do this, that, or the other? Or if I were God, this is what I would do? I remember a a chap on a talk show, he was a Christian and he was in the entertainment industry and there was this famous talk show host who was taking on his guest, his visitor, who was a proclaimed Christian. The guest was a proclaimed Christian. This other guy was giving him, the host, the interviewer, a hard time. And the interviewer said to the Christian entertainment star, he said to him, if I were God, he was about to come with one of those lines. And the movie star, who was a Christian, cut him off immediately and said to himself, well, Phil, you wouldn't have have to worry about that because we're not God. But given the story here, the Father is the God image. This is a picture of God's reckless extravagance towards us. Everything we have comes from him. Is that not the truth? Have we gone off and used it, squandered it, like the sun? What have we done with everything that God's given to us? Yet probably most of us are sitting here thinking, well, we're we're in church, we're the good guys. We've already recklessly abused God's goodness to us. And what's amazing is that same God, with the same reckless extravagance, wants to win the other son back. And he pleads with him. More of this story will unfold as the weeks go by. I do encourage you to go get the book. It's a brilliant piece of work and it's in our bookshop right here at the church. But whenever we put ourselves in judgment upon God, can I ask you, because I would guess every one of us has said to ourselves one time or another, if I were God, I would not do that or I would do this. Do you think you are morally 
Do we think we are morally superior to God? Let me ask you this. Do you think you are more generous and loving than God? Do you think that you and I care more about other people than God does? The picture of the Father looking out for the Son day after day, looking for Him, longing for Him to return, waiting for Him to return, is a picture of the power of God's extravagance in watching out, looking out for us, wherever we are away from Him, wayward from Him, to bring us back, to welcome us home, to restore us. That's how extravagant our God is, hence the title, the prodigal God, almost reckless. Do you, are we, you and I worthy to have God in any sense? Plead with us, long for us, draw us, wait for us, not to beat us up, but to draw us home, reestablish us, clean the filth off, put on some new robes of righteousness. Do you know when Jesus was literally telling this story, there was a lad growing up at the same time, being raised to be a religious elite, and he grew up to be such. And not so many years after Jesus had been crucified, dead and buried and risen from the dead, this lad who'd grown into manhood in his self-righteousness was going out, seeking out the Christians to beat them up, put them in prison, and actually oversaw the martyrdom of the first Christian martyr. But he was a lad growing up at the time Jesus was telling the story. But those years later, having come to faith, God looking out for this man who was Saul of Tarsus and bringing him back into the family so that he was completely restored and transformed and became the author of most of the New Testament. Let me read what he said some year, said, wrote some years later. As Paul the Apostle, he says this, I myself have reasons for this arrogance, this self-confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he gives a list of kind of inherited virtues, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, that's an extreme legalist, as far as zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. That's what he was under the old scheme of things. And when he got the picture, when he met Jesus, when Jesus took over his life, it led him on to say this, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things I consider them rubbish. That literally is, in the language of the New Testament, dung, horse dookie, rubbish. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own 
That's what everything else was about. Not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. There's a very famous verse in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. This is what it says. So this is scripture written predating the advent of Jesus. This is scripture presumably that every Jewish elitist would know. But they missed it. Here's what it says. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. This is the prophet Isaiah speaking. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. We have never, ever any reason to be able to come to God and say to him, you owe me. I am so good. I have done so much for you. I have given so much for you. You owe me. But what is brilliant is given that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. That extravagant God, in a sense reckless in his love for us, welcomes us back to reclothe us in our rightful minds, reestablish us with the ring of sonship or daughterhood, give us shoes for our feet that have been treading in all the wrong places and throw a party like no other party. That's how much he loves you and me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, friend and brother, Lord and Savior, cleanse us from all our self-righteousness. Forgive us our arrogance. Help us, Lord, to gain a right perspective, to come back to the heart of the gospel, to come back to your Father heart, looking out for every lost son and daughter. O oh Lord, thank you for your love for us. Give to us a heart like yours, that we might love as you love those whom you love. And we pray this for your namesake. Amen.